Colossians chapter 2. Let's just pray. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would speak to us, but also, Lord, that we would allow it to shape us, to change us, and to be men and women who love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all our mind, and all of our strength. And we ask that in your precious name, Lord. Amen. If you're to take a moment to think about the community that, that you live in, would you say it's good or would you say it's bad? Do you ever wonder if you should be part of it or maybe just, you know, just remove yourself from it completely and have absolutely nothing to do with it? Well, these are the questions that Paul is wrestling with at the, the end of, of chapter Two. So let's read what he's got to say. So we're in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. We read, You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules were mere human teaching about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, Set your sights on the reality of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now, there are two ways in which you can live and belong to this world. You can either follow the rules of the world or you can follow Jesus. But it would seem that like the Colossians had continued to follow the rules of this world, despite the fact that they'd been set free from the spiritual powers and its controls. An example that Paul gives to back up these allegations is a list, list of don'ts. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And at first reading, it, it's, it's not completely apparent what, what Paul means. It's maybe a bit confusing, even a little strange. So I want to try and explain what I think Paul is, is actually saying. The basic principle of a, a Greco-Roman culture, and it's worth noting that actually Western society follows the same principles today. These basic principles, they were not don't, 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 but do, do, do. Sensual indulgence, in fact, overindulgence, was how most people lived. Or at least that's how they, they, they longed to live if, if they could afford to do so. Now, having turned to Christ, the Colossian Christians rejected this sensual lifestyle, something I think probably maybe most of us would, would think was a good thing. After all, they, they knew the culture that they lived in was sinful, full of temptations and distractions. So their, their default position was to steer clear and to stay as far away from these things as possible. Yet, Paul still says that they were living as though they still belonged to the world. Why? 
You see, if, if, we, if we base how we live on this automatic rejection of culture, it's all bad, I'm going to have nothing to do with it, I'm just going to stay away from it as much as I can, it's, it is to be just as dominated by the culture around us just as much as it is to live with an unthinking acceptance of it. It's just all great. And Paul's point is living by don't, don't do this, don't do that, is as bad as living by do, just do whatever you want. There's actually no difference between the two. And Paul gives two reasons to support his argument as to why we shouldn't live by don't in, ver in verses 22 and 23. He says, it's a human teaching that is subject to change. It's not reliable. And, and, and basically, it varies with culture. It, it varies with individual preferences. Secondly, it just doesn't work. It doesn't lead to life. In fact, it actually leads to sin, the very thing that actually we want to stay away from. So if you are dominated by a desire to avoid doing wrong, all you can think about all day is doing wrong. And sooner or later, you give in and, well, you, you just do it. Let me give you a silly example. From time to time in my life, I think I need to lose some weight. So I get up in the morning and I decide I'm not going to eat any crisps today. Now, the, the problem is that all that go through my mind all day is no crisps, no crisps, no crisps. Cr crisps become the only thing I can think about. And I even get very specific. I, I begin to daydream about the type of crisps I'm not going to eat. Walker's sensation. Those Thai sweet chili ones, love them. Absolutely love them. But before too long, I, I convinced myself to, to buy a packet of crisps, but I justify it by thinking, you know what, there for the weekend, I'm definitely, I'm definitely not going to eat them now. But more often than not, before that day is gone, so are the crisps. And you get my point. You see, Paul's right that the Christian life isn't about don't any more than it is about do. So what is it about? See, there's a different way to live. In chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says that the basic identity of a Christian is that you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world, he goes on, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the reality of heaven where Christ sits in a place of honor at God's right hand. So, so rather than living by a mindset of don't do this and don't do that, there, there's a whole new, a whole better way of looking at our lives. You see, if you're a Christian, you, or at least you shouldn't be, you should no longer be dominated by this world because we don't belong to it. This is not our home. Instead, we, we simply live our new life, the life Christ gives us when we died, when we died and rose with Him. So whether your natural instinct is to be a doer, because you are scared of missing out on something that this world says is great or that you just always want that new experience, or maybe you are a doter, apologies to the English students among us, but whether you're a doter, you, you, 
and you reject everything just because, well, you're scared of being tainted by something. So even the good things that God has provided, you just brand them all as just wrong and sinful. You need to know that the Christian life is not about doing or doting. Sorry. It's about living with and like and for Jesus. So that when we see good in the culture, and there are plenty of good things all around us, we enjoy it as a gift from God. And, and when we see bad, we simply get on with enjoying knowing Christ. And the bottom line is the motor of the Christian life is not fixing our eyes on what is bad and, and then just, just trying not to do it. It's fixing our eyes on Christ and enjoying Him and being like Him. To live for Christ is a, it's like, it's like winning a race. I know a few of you are runners. And we find this illustration actually in many parts of Scripture. But the secret to winning is to concentrate on one thing. You see, no athlete succeeds by just doing everything. And instead, they succeed by, by specializing. A number of years back, I ran a personal best in the, in the marathon. I thought I'd go and have a go at triathlon. So I went for my first swim in probably many years. I was really quite fit, but to my shock, I could only swim one length of the pool before I'm gasping for air. I actually had to stop and rest. And strange as it sounds, running 26.2 miles in that moment felt easy in comparison to swimming one length of a swimming pool. I discovered I'm running fit, but I'm definitely not swimming fit. And, and there, are, there are a few athletes who are proficient in lots of different sports, and the winners are those who concentrate, who focus on one activity, who keep their eyes on the goal, who let nothing else distract them. They are, they dev, they are devoted entirely to their calling. In James chapter 1 and verse 8, we're reminded that a double-minded person is unstable in all of his ways. And the true follower of Jesus devotes themselves to running the Christian race, and their entire focus is on Jesus Christ and on the finish. That's why Paul says here in Colossians 3 verse 1, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in a place of honor at God's right hand. So, so when distractions come on the left and on the right from this world, and, and they're just all clamoring in for our attention, the only thing that will keep you going in a straight line is keeping your hearts fixed on Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul picks up a similar theme when he describes how he continually presses on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And what is that goal? Well, the reward that's waiting for us. Now, I think it's important to highlight that Paul is not saying that we reach heaven by our own efforts. It is by God's grace and by God's grace alone. But he's simply saying that just as the athlete is rewarded for his or her performance, so the faithful believer will be crowned when Jesus returns with a crown that will never fade. So run your race with determination. Let me reinforce this point by just one final passage from Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3. We read, Therefore, 
since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. He is seated in a place of honor before God's throne. Think of all the, all the hostility he endured for sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Let me just summarize what, what Paul is saying here in relation to Colossians 2, verse 20 to, 20 to chapter 3, verse 1, but also with the helpful thoughts from Hebrews 12 and actually some reference to Psalm Storm's book, Pleasure Evermore. See, why, why is it that we should keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Well, firstly, fixing your eyes on Jesus will give you victory over sin. Sin turns ugly and will be defeated only when it's seen in the light and in comparison to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Secondly, fixing your eyes on Jesus will encourage you to persevere. The strength to endure, to hang in there when, when everybody else is letting go comes from having your, your soul just captivated by Jesus. It's having a deep longing for him and for, for him alone. So wh wh where do you find your joy? Wh where do you find your satisfaction? Is it your work or your family or, or sport or food and drink or, or just meet church activities? Wh where do you turn when you're, when you're feeling down? If it's to anything else or anyone else other than Jesus, he's not really your first love. And what is interesting here in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 to 3, we're particularly told to look, in fact, to consider something about Jesus. And, and it isn't his miraculous signs or his amazing healings. It's not even his teaching that is highlighted here. It is in verse 2, his enduring the cross. In verse 3, enduring hostility. Paul says that that's what we should be looking at. You see, that there's something mysterious, there's something powerfully transforming about meditating on the suffering of Christ, on the cross of Christ, because it takes us to a surprising conclusion when we reflect on it. What was it that motivated Jesus to willingly endure suffering and shame? The answer? is joy. It's joy that was contemplated. It was joy that held him and, and nourished his heart. It was joy that was forever before him, that drew him. It was the joy of being exalted to God's right hand. He endured, and he even delighted in shame because of the joy that was set before him. He fixed his eyes on the finish. He fixed his eyes heavenward. He endured the cross the, the, before the glory of heaven for his, for his glorious bride, the church. And it's that joy in the Lord 
that helps us to tackle the great enemies that try to trip up the Christian who is running the Christian race and, and who wants to finish well. Those fleshly urges of, of being a, a doer and, and those sinful legalism of being a doter are just equally as dangerous to our souls and, and both of them are overcome in exactly the same way by fixing our minds on things above. So seek heavenly things because that is where Christ is. And as you fix your eyes on him, you, you behold his glory. And what you will discover as you behold him, you will become like him. The thing is that you will take on the qualities of whatever you most cherish. In the Bible you will find this transforming vision of the glory of Jesus. So when you eat and when you drink from the fountain of Scripture, Jesus becomes alive in your soul. And as you discover that he reigns forever undefeated, in fact, his kingdom is the only kingdom that stands firm forever, invincible, all-powerful, while others will come and go, he remains unchanged. The resurrected Jesus reigns in victory over sin and over death, which is why the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is central to the Bible, is central to faith. In fact, it's central to humanity itself. Daniel prophesies in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 about King Jesus. Listen to how he describes him. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In the New Testament, Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16, John this time is declaring, he says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written. Do not be in any doubt. There is one name that is above every name, one who is Lord over all, Jesus, only Jesus. He is God Almighty. He's possessor of heaven 
of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 14. He is the everlasting God of Isaiah 40. He is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders of Exodus 15. He is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the almighty, the awesome God of Deuteronomy 10. He is the Holy One of Psalm 99. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, creator of all things. In him all things exist and were created of Revelation 4.11. This is our God and his name is Jesus. He alone has absolute authority. And Paul says, fix your eyes on him. Look at Jesus. And as a result of seeing him, we are made like him. And sin does not stand a chance in the presence of the resurrected, glorified Jesus. And the more, the more we get to know him, we will continue this unfolding process that takes us from one stage of glory to another. A holiness that is not obtained through prohibiting or threats or shame or guilt. It's obtained by believing in and trusting in and resting on God's promises of a superior pure happiness that comes only through falling in love with Jesus. It comes through living in obedience to his word. So what are you going to do about it? The power to turn from the passing pleasures of sin is not simply a just say no campaign. How do you fight the, the, the pleasure of sin? How do you patiently endure the answer? With another pleasure. We fall in love with Jesus. An experience that begins at conversion when you put your life into Jesus' hands. By admitting that you need his help, it, it means acknowledging that you are a sinner as well as believing that Jesus is the answer, that he died for you, that, that he rose again. But it's only when you repent, when you come to him turning from your sin and from your pride and follow him, only then can you confess him to be Lord of your life. Sam Storm writes, this new taste of sweetness Turn sin sour in your soul. But this is the only the beginning. When you delight in God alone and find your hope and your joy in Him, it dislodges sin from your heart. But, but sadly, the opposite is, always, is, is, is also true because if, you're, if your passion for Jesus does not consume you, sin will. The goal and your purpose is to pursue happiness in, in God. There's no greater way to glorify Him. It's the, the very reason that we were created. Your purpose, your calling here on earth is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. And He is for you. He calls you to walk with Him, a road that leads to joy forever, which will involve sacrifice along the way. I want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and, and just, just speak to us. 
What are the areas that, that you or I need to surrender to Jesus right now? Let's take a moment. What are the areas that you or I need to surrender to Jesus right now? What are the do's and the don'ts that we need to give up? As we allow the Holy Spirit to, to challenge us, we need to come to grips with the question that I, that I often ask myself. Will Jesus be enough? Is there enough for you in Jesus Christ alone? See, he offers sufficient joy to keep your soul satisfied, to stop you from searching for other delights. Jesus, only Jesus is enough for now and for all of eternity. What will turn your heart from sin? Only one person, Jesus Christ. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ. Set your sights on the reality of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Let's stand together. We want to pray. I want you, as we did, a, I think, a couple of weeks back, just want to, want to just pray with me. Pray. I think there's something very significant in just declaring out loud. So I'm just, I'm just going to pray, and then you just say after me. Lord Jesus, thank you that I have died and risen with you. And therefore, I have life with you. Thank you that I am free to be positive and enjoy all that is good. And that I am freed from needing to chase anything that is not. Help me simply to live gladly for you today. Amen. 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 Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, may we apply it to our hearts. And may we keep our gaze and our eyes fixed on you and you alone. Holy Spirit, help us. We need you. Amen.